taking your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. And I want us to look at verses 23 through 27. Because we need to know what happens when we follow Jesus. This is a classic text to teach us about life. It says, Then Jesus got into the boat, and he started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly, a fierce storm struck the lake, with waves breaking into the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Jesus responded, Why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up, he rebuked the wind and waves, and suddenly... Just as suddenly as the fierce storm struck the lake in verse 24, when Jesus spoke and rebuked the wind and waves, suddenly there was a great calm. The disciples were amazed, saying, Who is this man? They were learning things about him. To that point, they hadn't learned. And they said, Even the winds and waves obey him. Make us better God by this word today. I can remember the first time that Kelly and I were able to get our kids on an inner tube behind a boat and we pulled them across the lake and we can remember as the hesitation turned into excitement because we're just pulling them along at a very comfortable speed and they were getting used to it and they were having fun and their face says, I am now having fun. It was a little hesitant at first. But then the, the countenance changed. It says, I'm having fun. And when I saw the look of fun, I thought, that means speed up. <laughs> I know what that means. Now, that's my interpretation. That was my interpretation. That is obviously not the interpretation that, that they have. But that, that, I interpreted that to mean speed up. That meant we, we've done this long enough. Now, now let's, let's take it up a notch. And you know, as the driver of the boat... You can determine speed, you can, you can you know, throw them out on the side of the boat, and you can create some waves. And, and I watched that countenance that said, I'm having fun, turn to one of great uncertainty. Let's just call it uncertainty. And as they did it, more and more they learned how to anticipate what it was to be connected and to be on that ride. And because they learned how to anticipate, as it intensified, they knew how to adjust, shift their weight on the inner tube so that when we're swinging it wide and and it's starting to tip, they could shift around so that it wouldn't flip and throw them. And and they were holding on for dear life. Now it's one of, like, you know, in a way that it's so fun, but but at the same time, am I going to live? So it's a unique experience being connected and trying to follow the leader who's in control of speed, intensity, seasons, situations, years. And I find in that a a great illustration of what it means to follow Jesus. There are times, and our countenance will say it, absolute delight. And then there are times where we're uncertain, even struggling with fear. But as we learn to anticipate, we learn to respond. And this text teaches us how to anticipate what happens when you follow Jesus. 
so that we can respond in certain ways to keep strength and stability. This is an interesting passage, and to really get a hold of it, you got to back up just a few verses and see the conversation that Jesus was having. And in the study of Scripture, in Bible college they call it hermeneutics. It's the study of Scripture. You learn to look for landmarks. And there's a landmark in this that's so obvious that, that you can't miss it. And it sets up what Jesus is really trying to teach even as they get in the boat and they go to the other side. So let's take a look at verses 18 through about 21. And I'm going to read this from the NIV. It says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave them orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now Jesus says, well, you need to consider that because foxes have holes and birds have nests and the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. In other words, there's, there's a cost, there's a sacrifice. Don't be so quick to say, I will follow You need to consider this. Now, another disciple said, Lord, I'm going to follow you, but I've got some some business to take care of. says, first, let me go and bury my father. The context there was that the father was not dead, but perhaps the time was coming. So he's saying, once I can take care of some future issues, then I will follow. All right? But Jesus said, verse 22, follow me. Let the future take care of itself. Let the dead bury the dead. Now the landmark in those verses are all about following Jesus. One says, I'll follow you. Another says, I'll follow. Jesus makes sure that their thinking is right on what it really means to follow. And he says, you're dead on. You need to follow me. Then when we come to our passage, listen to verse 23 again in the NIV. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. So it's all about following him, and following him is the way life works. When you get saved, you go from convert to disciple. You go from a person who is saved, then now following Jesus. You're doing life according to a biblical plan, no longer self-led living, You're trying to be led of Scripture, being transformed by God's grace and word on a daily basis. So you're following Jesus, but what do you experience when you follow him? When you follow Jesus, life happens. Well, when life unfolds, what should we expect? Well, here's our text. They get into a boat, and they do life at the word of God. Get in the boat. We're going to the other side, and they're on the Sea of Galilee. That was like sitting in a bowl. And often the hot air would rise and the cold air would come down. And it would stir up one intense storm. So they're on this journey. And so what we're learning is that following Jesus, and this is a very important word, is like an expedition. It's not boring. It's an adventure. And we need to have that seeded into our hearts. And as we pass on to the next generation a concept of Christianity, it is one of not just coming to church, that's part of the journey. It's an expedition. Because as you know, when they get to the other side, they're going to encounter this man who's possessed of the devil. And their job is to deal with him. No one can control him. No one knows what to do with him. 
But Jesus is going to step foot into that situation along with his followers. And, and they're going to extract the man from the demons. And the man's going to be extracted from darkness and, and his addiction and his twistedness and be put in his right mind. So what is following Jesus? It's an expedition that we are on together where we are seeking to extract the sinners from the darkness and the twistedness and addiction so that they can come into this marvelous light and join the expedition. And as we are faithful, the day is coming according to Scripture and even the word you've heard today that the church age will end and Jesus will come and extract His church in what is called the rapture and we will forever be with God. Until then, we follow, but as we follow on this expedition, get ready because some storms rise. We aren't careful. The storms will rise. The disciples got in the boat. Israel, let me set this up. Let me be very careful. Israel was supposed to do this job. But Israel was struggling with it and they withdrew from culture. And out of their withdrawal came the Pharisees. The very word means to withdraw. So rather than doing the Great Commission, which is about going... Rather than doing the Great Commission, which is about infiltrating, being on the expedition where we are taking ground, they withdraw. So Jesus calls his disciples and reminds them there's an assignment, and it is to follow. And as they follow, they make a difference. So you've got the church in this boat. We're getting such an incredible picture And there's nothing the devil would like more than for the adversity that we all deal with to so drain us that we have no energy or faith expectation for the person who's still locked up in darkness. Because it's all we can do to just survive. It's all we can do to just make it another day. And when all of my strength is used up in survival then I don't have a lot of faith when I come in contact with the person who's outside of the family of God and desperately needing deliverance and put in his right mind. See, there's a community that needs help. But if the church doesn't know how to weather the storm, we'll never get to make the extraction. So we've got the church in this boat. And verse 24 says, suddenly, a fierce storm. Suddenly, because the heat was rising, the cool air is coming down. Sea of Galilee was like sitting in a bowl, and now you have this storm. And on that boat were seasoned, experienced, expert fishermen. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Their occupation, professional fishermen. They understood water. They understood navigating storms. There's no doubt they had weathered many storms and navigated many storms. But now, they are dealing with adversity that goes beyond their ability. Therein lies a challenge. What will followers do when confronted with adversity beyond their ability? Because the way we respond to that has everything to do if we continue the expedition and make the extraction.
Let's follow the text. You see, this text helps me to anticipate life. What we're shown here is when they get in the boat and go across the Sea of Galilee, what happens? Life happens. Adversity happens. Adversity is just a part of life. Jesus told us that. I mean, the very seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. I'm talking about real adversity. Paul said, if if we don't understand a theology of difficulty, then we'll go home. I, I had a pastor tell me not long ago they were thinking of considering leaving the ministry because they got a, a mean email. <laughs> like, you, you got to be tougher than that. You will never make the extraction of those who are in darkness if the first critical email derails you. So this text gives us a way to anticipate. Think of the book of Acts, which was the birth of the church. Started in great power. And as they followed Jesus, it led right into very intense adversity. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He wrote prison epistles because he was in a dungeon. And while in that dungeon, he kept his passion for God. And he called for some parchment and took his quill and began to write. And we get Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. He he kept serving God, but it was out of great adversity. Consider our own journey. I think that this text, Matthew 8, 23 through 28, lets you anticipate what it's like to follow Jesus right up to this century. And however many years the Lord gives us, This allows us, just as my kids learn to anticipate the journey behind the boat, this text allows us to prepare our minds so that we aren't in this this inability to respond when adversity goes beyond our our ability. Very important. So this expedition is happening. There's adversity. It goes beyond our ability. But where is Jesus? He's asleep. Why is he asleep? Because he has not been invited into their everyday life. This is critical. He is inactive because the experts are in control. See that? Peter, James... John, Andrew, they're experts. I'm not undermining them whatsoever. Seasoned, experienced. They knew what they were doing. They're professionals. They knew Jesus as teacher. They knew Jesus as a miracle worker. But they're fishermen. And this is the Sea of Galilee. And this is a storm. And they've dealt with storms. So they do not summon Jesus at that point because they can handle it. Jesus, as you study him, in this classic text, he has been compartmentalized. Some versions even tell us that he was asleep in the lower part of the boat. 
He's in the church, but he's compartmentalized. He's, he's a part of their life, but he's categorized. He's compartmentalized. So maybe this is why of the 35 miracles Jesus did, we realize that seven of them are over the sea. Because he's wanting to teach his disciples, 11 of which were men of Galilee. Judas is the only one from the south. Of the 11 who were from Galilee... A significant number were expert fishermen. And so they have to be taught that Jesus did not come to just give us saving grace and then to be compartmentalized as the Savior, but not get to go into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as the Lord of our life. So from the Sunday school room or from the auditorium of the congregation right into the boardroom, right into the classroom, right into the cubicle, into the warehouse, right into everyday life. You see, maybe I am going to be challenged that I know how to do business or I know how to do and I play it out. Because I've given myself and I'm educated and I've developed an expertise. I can tell you right now that the greatest challenge that every pastor faces is whether or not we will depend on God or depend on self. And mistake the presence of people sitting in seats for the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then on a Monday we'll look at our budget and we will look at our attendance and we will determine success by numbers financially and numbers numerically in attendance and never say, was the Spirit of God at work within the church? And we learn how to do church. We learn how to sing. We learn how to preach. We learn how to maximize the use of technology. And we innovate and we create all of which are blessings of God. But if, not, if we're not careful, we'll do them apart from God. And so we need a little adversity that goes beyond our ability. I'm going to take my time today. <laughs> I need to hear this. Church history, let's think about church history. It's not fluid. It's rather rough. The church literally jerks through history because we get prosperous, blessed. Then we lose our focus and we're doing life in our own ability. And when the adversity comes, which is really a blessing... Because it reminds us that we can't be self-led. We call out. Jesus responds. Even in his mercy and his holiness, he still will, will hear the cry of his followers. In 1857, just before one of the greatest revivals of history, here's what was happening. You had the threat of war bank panic, and political chaos. Things were out of control. People were saying, it has never been this bad. I get breaking news on my phone, and even to this day, this very already, it lights up every day with some statement that some political affiliation or even the president has made, 
and all of the responses to it. You, we have war. We have this banking issue. We have, a, we have political chaos. And people are saying it's never been this bad. That's exactly what was said in 1857. So in 1858 was one of the greatest moves of God in all history. Could we be poised on the verge of one of the greatest moves of God we have ever seen? And is it going to be the result that the American church realizes we cannot do church, the Christian life, in our own ability? I don't care how educated or successful and what positions us to feel like an expert, we're dealing with things today that can only be confronted by calling on Jesus out of a compartment or a category into the full expression of all that we are and all that we do. What needs to happen in the church is we need to call on God, turn God loose, and let Him have His way in His church and through His church because the answer for the world is not found at the White House or your house or my house. It is found at the foot of the cross. He is still the answer for the world. So these disciples, they go, man, this storm, this, this is beyond us. So they go to, they wake him up. They say, Lord, save us. We're drowning. One man said, and I don't know who it, who it was because I would give him credit, says the greatest works of God happen in the very worst of times. Now apply this personally. If you're going through one of the worst of times personally, you could be right on the brink of one of the greatest works of God in your life. The wind and the waves, boisterous, I mean the Sea of Galilee has, has turned into a cauldron. The disciples, the experts feel like they're going to drown. And Jesus is asleep. The wind and the waves don't wake him up. But when the first word came from a desperate follower's mouth. Jesus woke up. Jesus is not concerned. He is not sitting on the throne today insecure with what he's going to do. See, I saw breaking news. Jesus is not taking his mobile phone and showing it to God. Look, look, we didn't see this coming. He's not caught by surprise. He's not insecure with what's happening. The wind and the waves, he can handle them. What gets his attention is when a follower or his church will cry from desperation and say, we need thee. Oh, we need thee. Jesus, first of all, talked to his disciples. He said, why are you afraid? He says, you have so little faith. See, they had little faith in God. They had a lot of faith in themselves. That's why they worked so hard before they ever went to it. Their faith was in their ability but this adversity went beyond their ability. And so they finally go to Jesus. And they're learning. And Jesus is wanting them to know, you've got to bring me into everyday life. You can't categorize me. 
You need me. You can't let me be like the captain of the boat in some areas and then send me to the lower part of the boat on other days while you navigate. You have to establish me as the captain of the ship. So after he worked with his disciples, he then, then he turns and he rebukes, listen, wind and waves, cause and effect. Because he can handle both. And as suddenly as the storm came up, according to verse 24, according to verse 26, so suddenly there was a great calm. So in verse 27, these disciples, they are amazed because they're learning about Christ. They're learning at a level that they have never experienced before. Because as life unfolds, we experience him as Savior. But we learn about his character and nature in adversity. We learn about his power when we're reaching out to the hurting and the broken and the bound and we see them delivered. And so they are experiencing God and his presence and power at a level they had never experienced before. We understand this. This is why it's a classic text. We have this intellectual knowledge of God, this concept of God. We experience him as Savior. But yet the depth of connection with God, it happens, and listen to this, and it's discovered when life gets out of control. That's when we're on the verge of knowing God at a far deeper level, deeper than we've ever known before. I want you to hear the words of Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, we think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed. Listen to the description. Crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we had never lived through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves. And we learned to rely on God who raises the dead. The message paraphrase puts it like this. We don't want you in the dark, friends, about how hard it was when all this came down on us in the Asia province. It was so bad, we didn't think we were going to make it. Have you ever felt that way? Things so bad, you don't think you're going to make it? Well, the great hero, the Apostle Paul, the writer of two-thirds of the Bible, he too felt that way. He says, we felt like we had been sent to death row, and it was over for us. As it turned out, listen, it was the best thing that could have happened. Instead of trusting in our own strength or wits to get out of it, we were forced to trust God totally. Not a bad idea, since he's the God who raises the dead. Paul is saying here he learned. He learned through the adversity that went beyond his ability to depend on God. He learned when it was so difficult that he felt he was on death row. And yet it turned out to be the best thing that could have ever happened 
Because instead of trusting in his own strength, his own ideas, his own expertise, he was forced to trust God. Let's look at the lessons and let me make two applications. In this text, we learn number number one that followers are people who are willing to go. Jesus said, get in the boat, we're going. We should always be mobile. We are ministry. We are the carriers of the message. We are carrying the hope. We are the light. We are the salt. It's who we are. And so we are accepting the assignment called the Great Commission. And so we go. It's what the church is about. It was never static or attractional because it was locational. This is just one aspect. We are a movement of like-minded people, all motivated by what Christ did for us at the cross. So we're sent. And we learn by this text, storms will rise, which means life happens. It's not unusual. Life happens. Number three, Christ wants to be in the reality of everyday life. No compartmentalizing. In other words, he can't be Sunday Jesus. Every day. Number four, we learned that all authority is given to him. And life obeys him. Wind and waves. Number five, we learn the depths of God. We learn about the depths of God when we call to him in times of trouble. Two stories. I would call it one application. One man that I know of who had a heart attack, didn't die, and in the recovery, he went into a deep depression. He was a person who was accustomed to being in control. He said, I wish it was possible for the doctors to do an MRI on my perception of reality. Because then I could put it up and it somehow show what's wrong with me because he just couldn't, he couldn't connect. Great family, great friends. His wife couldn't reach him. His friends couldn't reach him. He said he had always had an appreciation and a faith in the greatness of God. He understood at the extent that a man can about, you know, a sun that's placed in the sky, not so far away that we freeze to death, but not so close that we burn up. That you could put tens of thousands, even millions of earths in the one sun, and the sun is one of the smaller stars in our one galaxy, which is one galaxy of billions of other galaxies. So he had this appreciation and would resonate when David writes that his glory, God's glory, is higher than even the heavens. But he called out and he said, God, what I need to know is that in all of your greatness, can you get to a place that the people who love me the most can't get to? And can you help me there? And God, I need to know, can you get to the place in me that is broken, that medicine hasn't been able to fix, and loving people haven't been able, can you get, and God met him there. And he said what turned it was he just folded his hands in prayer, this guy who was used to being in control, who now couldn't find an answer, 
and was dealing with the misery and the emotional imbalance of depression, he said, I folded my hands and I prayed, God, I need you to find me. This adversity is beyond my ability. And he said, God found me. And God delivered me. Maybe like that man, you've hit some adversity. Life is happening and right now it's tough. You've applied yourself, but you don't know what else to do. I would challenge you to fold your hands in prayer and say, God, I need to experience you at that deep level of you finding me where I really am and giving me the grace that I need right now. Second story, same application comes from a great pastor. Dr. Criswell, who pastored the great church of First Baptist Dallas. This man is in the documents of church history as being a stalwart leader, a pioneer of his day, an innovator of his day, broke most every trend and benchmark we had in church history in terms of reaching the lost and building a church that had a passion for the lost and building a church that had a passion for a city and a church that was reaching people and just burgeoning and growing. Years ago when our country was in unusual adversity, he says he was watching how that was affecting his people. Sitting in the pews across First Baptist Dallas were the experts of the city. He had reached the influencers. But the adversity that was unfolding in the country was beyond their ability. And he remembers right after church on a Sunday going to his facilities manager and says, I need you to help me do something. By next Sunday, I need kneelers installed in all of these pews. Now, many of you know what I'm talking about. A pew, one long row, and then a kneeler, it just would fold down so that Right out of your seat, you could just kneel. Uh, However, Baptist churches didn't install those. It was not of their tradition. Their tradition was prayer. Their tradition was an altar, but not kneelers. But he knew that if he stood before his church of wonderful people who had given themselves to education and had great experience and, and were experts in their field and said, would you come forward he, he would get a very few, and yet he knew the whole ship was suffering adversity. So he said, I, I want to put kneelers in every pew. And he stood before his church, and he referenced the things that were going on that were creating such unrest. And he said, what I would like to call us to do is put our hands together and go to our knees as a church simply humble ourselves before God and say, we don't know what to do. We need you. And that day, that next Sunday, in that great historic church, that congregation fell to their knees in humble prayer. 
And it was a turning point in the life of that church. It did something for that church in the generations to come because now the generations to come are, are leading the church now. And even with the economy like it is in our nation, First Baptist Dallas, they're seeing souls saved. The church is growing as never before. And they're right in the middle in this economy. In a $115 million, one part renovation and one part new construction, right in the heart of Dallas. And it is this sprawling campus because people are being saved and being brought in. And to the leader, they talk about their faith, their response to present adversity, their faith to deal with it was was built within the heritage of the church when the pastor just said, are we willing to fold our hands in prayer and get on our knees and say, God, we need you. Maybe like the man who had a place in his life that nobody could get to and he needed God. He needed to know, could God find him there? And God did or maybe like First Baptist Dallas. Corporately, we need to fold our hands in prayer and get on our knees. Say, God, we need you. I think if we will, he will arise. You can hear the Old Testament prophets saying he will arise from his rest. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's in control and he's fine. But he will arise at the voice, at the syllable that starts forming the desperate cry of his people. The wind and the waves, they don't bother him. They don't stir him. But when his followers call out in desperation, he's there. He responds and he reminds us that he said, we're going to the other side. See, the rapture is going to happen and we're going to the other side. We will have adversity, but if we will learn to invite him into everyday life, then we turn this present adversity into the very nutrition of our spiritual devotion, and it becomes fuel to witness because it's so easy to get into a a talk about money, and you can turn it to, where is God in all of this? You can talk about the uncertainty in our world and all the, the... the war and rumors of war. We can talk about where does God fit in. And if people sense a, a peace that is in the depths of your heart. If you've gone through a personal storm. I have. And you can say I found God. Or you can say God found me. I did everything I knew to do. And I just said God I need you. And he found me. That's a witness And so your expedition moves on to extracting others, which is what it's all about. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts.